You are listening to the First Tech Podcast. These podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, it's important you understand the content of this podcast may be difficult to follow, as it assumes you have the necessary training, qualifications and experience to understand the concepts discussed as well as the technical language used. If you still decide to listen, please understand the information contained in this recording is general information only and does not take into account any of your personal circumstances, needs or objectives. Any scenarios considered during this podcast are purely hypothetical and for illustrated purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. Where a client suffers an accident or illness, they may be able to access their super benefits on ground of permanent incapacity and may also qualify for concessional tax treatment via the tax-free uplift on any benefits they receive. However, depending on a client's circumstances and the transactions that have occurred on their super account both before and after they access their benefits, they could end up with a range of different outcomes. I'm your host, Craig Day, and here to discuss a number of practical issues we see advisors dealing with in relation to invalidity payments is Linda Bruce, one of my senior technical services managers. G'day, Linda. Hey, Craig. How are you? Very, very well. Yourself? Yeah, good. Thanks. Excellent. Excellent. So, Linda, we're going to be talking about invalidity payments, kind of like not that cheery a subject, but one which we get a lot of questions in the tech team. Is that right? Yes, indeed. Um, many queries in recent days and has always been the case in relating to the permanent capacity and invalidity payment. All right, terrific. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through and look at three different practical issues that we see coming up. So what I'm going to first do is just set the scene um, and then apply these practical kind of issues within this context. So what we're dealing with here is a member that has suffered some kind of accident or illness, and they've made an application to the trustee of their super fund to have their benefits released on the grounds of permanent incapacity, and they provide two doctor's certificates to support their claim. The trustee then claims, uh, reviews their claim, and based on the evidence, they are reasonably satisfied the member is permanently incapacitated and releases their benefits, at which point in time, the value of their benefits in the fund become unrestricted, non-preserved. Now, you may think this is all pretty straightforward. The member then takes a lump sum, they get the tax-free uplift, and their benefit payment is concessionally taxed. End of story. However, humans being humans and uh, complexity being complexity, it's never quite that simple. So given all of that, what's the first kind of practical kind of issue that we see with these types of arrangements? Yeah, Craig, um, the first one we've seen is that um, where the member received a TBD uh, insurance payout uh, very often, uh, the balance could be really large. And the member probably only need a fraction of that uh, benefit to take it out of a super, that'd be paying their medical uh, expenses or pay down their personal debts or mortgages. And very often, the member would leave a large chunk of money in super. Right. So so they're taking an initial payment. And Mm -hmm. as you say, you, you quite often see, and I think you're spot on here, that someone's, uh, particularly if they've been in an accident, made paraplegic or something, they've got some significant 
um, medical bills to pay. They may also be wanting to make changes to their their residence or their dwelling so that they can live there in a, a wheelchair or something like that. Um, but then they leave large amounts sitting in super for future decisions around how they're going to take that benefit, whether it's an income stream or, or a lump sum or something like that. So what happens when you get these different payments taken at different times? So first thing first, um, Craig, that tax-free uplift, uh, which mm-hmm. is relating to the invalidity payment, the, that really is a tax concession. So that doesn't apply to the whole entire uh, benefit in super. It only happens or trigger the calculation of the tax-free uplift where there is a trigger event. A trigger event could be a lump sum withdrawal, but that only triggers the calculation that's relating to the actual partial lump sum payment the member is taking outside the super, right? It doesn't apply to any remaining amount. Okay, so when we think about that, when we're normally taking a super benefit, we're required to go and calculate the tax components of that super benefit based on the the tax purport the tax component proportions of the benefit that we draw it from. So what you're saying to me is that yes, we go and do that, but then we modify those tax component to increase the tax free component, but it only applies just the lump sum. We don't apply that to the benefit from which we're drawing it. Is that right? Yeah, it applies to the actual amount the member is taking, but it does nothing to the remaining amount. Okay, so some down, sometime down the track, this member's probably going to want to come along and take either an additional lump sum or potentially even the full balance as a lump sum. So does this all just work the same? Uh, it may be the same. Or it may be quite mm. a differently. It really depends on the underlying situation. Yeah, yeah the, the, the longer, every, yeah. The to every technical question, it's always it depends. So what does it, it depend depends. on? It depends on really. Um, so to start with, whether the member still has access to everything in the fund to start with, because if you leave the money uh, money there for a long period of time, you're going to see growth, right? Mm-hmm. So if you see the growth, um, say you originally had $1 million, now you had a, a growth to $1.3 million, does the member still have a full access to the whole entire $1.3 million? Mm-hmm. What happens to the $300,000 of growth? Would that be okay, so um, you know, preserved? Or would that be yeah. unrestricted, unpreserved? Yeah, great question. So, because when you when you understand how the preservation rules work, what what the the CIS regs do there is they actually, when when you go from preserved to unrestricted, non-preserved, and you leave the money in the fund, it's it's the amount at the time the trustee is satisfied that you satisfied that condition of release that becomes unrestricted, non-preserved, isn't it? So, if you're going to leave, let's say you get this one point five million dollar payment. You take $500,000 out to pay off your debts and do whatever work to your home. Um, then this extra million dollars, if you come back 12 months later, now in more like, in all likelihood, you probably would have you know, de-risked your portfolio in that sort of situation because you know you're going to take a lump sum in 12 months' time. So it's sitting there earning interest. There's going to be an extra five, ten, fifteen thousand $15,000 depending on the, the size of the amount you leave there. So is that growth... Is that unrestricted or preserved, or is that preserved? 
Yeah, so depends on whether the member still satisfies the um, um, permanent incapacity conditional release or an uh, alternative conditional release. So the thing is, um, if the member leaves the money there for a long period of time, situation could change. Um, and the, could the trustee still satisfy that the member is still permanent incapacitated? If a member wants to access under that particular conditional release, um, if, um, let's just say two, three years has passed, if there's mm. any doubt that the, the trustee is not satisfied that the member is still permanently capacitated, the member could lose accessibility to the growth portion. Yeah, I, th- I suppose it's important to understand here that when you go and look at the permanent incapacity condition of release, for the trustee, there's actually no requirements for doctor certificates. They, in, a, in a lot of circumstances, they'll get them because the insurers will want them. Yep. Um, but a trustee actually just needs to be reasonably satisfied. Now, where this comes into play is, in, I think in the most circumstances, you're probably going to trustee see a trustee want those original medical certificates. But what happens is if they take that original $500,000, you know, and then a month later, they're asking for the additional million then in that situation, more than likely, the trustee is going to turn around and look and say, well, if you were permanently incapacitated a month ago, more than likely, you're still permanently incapacitated. I'm reasonably satisfied. And they're just going to release that growth, make that unrestricted, not preserved as it leaves the fund. But if you leave it there for 12, 18, 24 months, there is a risk that the trustee will say, um, that's now $20,000 higher. That's a a reasonable material sum of money, we want to be satisfied that you've satisfied a condition of release. Given the time period, um, given the circumstance, because sometimes you might even see contributions being made to the to the fund during that period, um, they may turn around and say, you know what, we want an additional, we want to be see some additional medical certificates that you still satisfy that condition of release at that time. Um, so, yeah, really interesting. Uh, what about the tax-free uplift? On that remainder, so I've taken my initial five hundred. Yes. We've got the tax free uplift so, on that. Uh, yeah, it, there's there's no uh, tax free uplift applying to the remainder portion. So it's just sitting there, and the insurance portion, insurance proceeds paid to the fund will form part of the taxable component. Um, so if the member just leave there and um, does nothing, uh, obviously that is not triggered. Uh, the, the calculation and then if the member wants to take the remainder out further down the track it all then depends right because ATO had a uh, uh, ATO ID that's the um, uh, interpreted decision 2015 9 if you want to get to the uh, nitty gritty details <laughs> it, the ATO implied that the medical certificates for the tax free uplift to apply it needs to be recent or valid. However, the ATO didn't tell us, as always, um, what is recent and what's, what is valid. Then it up to the individual fund to interpret what is recent and what is valid. So um, in our experience, uh, different fund uh, applies to different rules. And if, um, let's just say, if it's within the six months of issuing, issuing the medical certificates, most likely the fund will just apply the tax-free uplift when the additional lump sum is taken. However, if that period is over six months, it really depends 
depends. And very often, the fund may require the member uh, to submit additional medical certificates to say that the member is still permanently capacitated. Otherwise, uh, they, they don't, don't mm, get it. Yeah. Yeah, I was, was going to say, so if they don't, then um, the payment's not a disability super benefit. So therefore, you don't get any tax-free uplift. And no, you don't. What would happen if they decided to then maybe instead of taking a lump sum, take a pension? Then what that pension if- is not a disability benefit. If it's not a disability benefit and if the member is under preservation age, well, the member just can't get the 15% the tax offset um, relating to the pension taxable component. Yeah, so it'd be taxed as normal assessable yeah. income with no tax concessions. My so tax rate. Is there what there must be some solutions or strategies here? What what can we think about doing? Yeah, the very often uh, what people think of uh, doing is when they initially met the conditional release, uh, have the uh, the medical certificates. Uh, very often, you know, for various reasons, the member may roll over the full amount due to a different super fund. Now, the rollover is considered a, as one of the trigger events. And when the member does a rollover, what it does to the super benefit is that uh, the exiting super fund will have to apply the tax-free uplift to the whole entire rollover benefit. So once uh-huh. the receiving fund receives the rollover amount, that amount should, has been, should have already been grossed up with additional tax-free amount. Um, mm-hmm. So the member just doesn't have to worry about additional withdrawals in the future and worry about the additional uh, worry about the um, uh, the tax free uplift. Yeah, uh, so that's quite a good strategy. So if we leave it the same fund, then we've got this problem with future lump sums and whether or not that's going to be a disability super benefit, whether we get the tax free uplift, or we simply just roll it over. That qualifies as a disability super benefit, yep. uh, and then the amount that gets left in super that's fully been adjusted for the tax free component. So we don't have to worry about this in future. Probably got to worry about that you know, re-preservation or the growth issue from a super perspective, but we don't have to worry about from tax. Okay, cool. Um, What about practical issue number two that we see? What does this involve? It involves, um, just as mentioned earlier, the tax-free uplift, but this is particularly Mm -hmm. relating to commencing the pension, uh, an income stream under the ground of a permanent capacity, but with the same fund. Right. So I think I know the issue here. So to be a disability super benefit, the trustee's really got to make a payment and it's that definition of payment that's really important here. So the 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 client or the member may have their necessary medical certificates. They may actually be permanently incapacitated, but you've actually got to make a payment from the fund for the disability super benefit uplift to apply. So the interesting thing here is the ATO were asked, asked this back in 2009 and they issued an ATO ID 2009-125, so getting all technical. Mm. Um, and what, what they've said there that actually starting a pension doesn't constitute the making of a payment by the fund. Instead, what's simply happening there is you're taking their existing benefit and you're using it to start an income stream. Therefore, without the payment, you don't get the tax-free uplift calcula- calculation. Um, Mm. But I suppose what you do see here is that people or advisors start to think about, well, what if we roll over to a more suitable fund? Let's say the 
Um, the member was in an employer fund and now they're not working anymore and there's actually uh, a, probably a cheaper or to say there's a cheaper fund out there that could pay them an income stream and we decide to roll over. Yeah. Didn't we just talk about rollovers? Yes, we did. Yep. <laughs> yes. So what happens there? So in that situation, really good question, Craig. In that situation, the tax-free uplift has already been applied to uh, the whole entire benefit. Once the benefit landed in the new super fund and the member commences the pension with the um, the tax-free uplift already applied to, they do get the benefit of additional tax-free uplift, uplift in the new fund in pension phase. And in addition, they're probably going to get the 15% pension offset in that second pension as well, or that second fund as well. Is that correct? That, that's another trap. Um, you know, uh, the fund receive a benefit, uh, most likely 100% unrestricted, non-preserved. And very mm-hmm. often the member or the advisor just think, okay, let's just move to pension phase because you can. Everything is unrestricted, non-preserved. But however, to get that 15% tax offset, if the member is under preservation age, you do need to submit the medical certificates to the new fund. The pension needs to be commenced on the ground of a permanent incapacity. If you commence a pension without submitting the medical certificate, uh, what will happen is that you get the pension, you get the pension payment, but you don't get the 15% tax offset if you're under preservation age. So okay. very important to, to get yeah. the medical certificates. So in that situation, you'd be providing the medical certificates to the original fund? To the new fund. To, yeah. and, and then to the new fund as well, because you want the uplift on the rollover. And then you're providing those medical certificates to the new fund to get the 15% offset on the pension you're starting in the new fund. Is that right? Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Terrific. All right. Moving on to practical issue number three. And this isn't so much about how we're taking the invalidity benefit. It's it's about how we're setting our funds up, especially where we're holding uh, TPD insurance via different arrangements. Can you can you run me through practical issue number three? Uh, absolutely, Craig. So um, this is not as obvious as the first or second issue because it's something like a, it's hidden. Um, mm-hmm. It's not uh, talked or discussed very often. Uh, that is um, the fund holding an insurance policy and the member could either because the member has a cash flow problem or uh, we all know that very often funding insurance premium um, by rolling over a benefit from a different fund um, could have reduced the insurance premium. So for whatever the reason is, if um, we're rolling over a benefit from a different fund to this uh, current fund holding TBD insurance to fund the insurance premium, um, very often there may be you know, hidden or less desired tax issues here. Right. So I think what we're talking about here is, um, if I get this correctly, we're probably talking about insurance-only super funds um, because premiums we could normally pay from our balance. But if we've got an insurance-only super fund, we don't have a balance. Mm -hmm. So you've got to fund those premiums out of contributions or you do it out of rollovers from another fund. And if you're doing it out of rollovers from another fund, you don't have an impact on the client's cash flow. So that's one positive aspect. And you also get those reduced premiums because the the tax has been taken into account. Is that right? That's correct. Yes. Right, right. So um, in this case, um, 
So, okay, so we've talked about tax-free uplift here a bit. Um, I get the gist that because we're doing it this way, there's some sort of negative outcome, and that's that's going to be based on this tax-free uplift. So before we go into this lurking hidden technical trap, um, can you run through this formula in terms of how we calculate tax-free uplift because that's going to be important? Oh, absolutely, Craig. It uh, has everything to do with the tax-free uplifts. You're spot on. So mm-hmm. the formula states um, the you get the uh, the benefit the be- amount of the benefit, and the additional tax-free uplift um, is a um, the days to retirement divided by service days plus days to retirement. So um, the numerator is the days to retirement. It represents the date where the member becomes permanently incapacitated to, um, generally speaking, age 65. Now, the denominator is the service days plus days to retirement. Now, the service date is the um, starting date of the eligible service period, whatever recorded by the fund, uh, to where the lump sum is made or withdrawn, and the plus days to retirement were mentioned earlier. So, as we can appreciate, so the member could become a permanent incapacitated earlier than the lump sum withdrawn uh, is drawn or the rollover uh, happened. So there might be overlapping days in the de- denominator of the formula. So the ATO mm-hmm. says any overlapping days, we can just completely ignore it. So that's the okay. formula. That's good. So if... So bring it back to the practical issue number three here. So we were talking about funding these premiums with rollovers. Yep. Now, if I fund the premium with the rollover, what's the eligible? Uh, sorry, the eligible service date that I'm using? Because here's the trap, right? Yes, here is the trap. Without a rollover, usually the eligible service period starts when the member joins the fund. So where the member funding the insurance premium uh, by making contributions, uh, you're not changing the date of the eligible service date. However, where the fund receives a rollover from a different fund and where the rollover carries a earlier eligible service date from the different fund, the current fund will inherit a earlier eligible service date, meaning yeah. the other fund's starting eligible service period becomes this fund's eligible service period. Yeah, so and that's a little bit odd, isn't it? Because sometimes mm. you can see eligible service dates that predate the members' membership of the fund by years and years and years, yeah. and it's all because there's a, there's a rollover come from a from a different fund, yeah. which had that earlier service date. So. If if going back to your explanation of the formula, so days to retirement divided by service days plus days to retirement, so that's the proportion, and then we apply that to our benefit, add in any existing tax-free, and that's our tax-free component. So what I'm hearing here is the shorter the eligible service date, then that means the denominator is a smaller figure, and therefore the days to retirement is a larger proportion so therefore, you get a larger tax-free uplift. But when we're rolling over a benefit from a fund that's got an earlier service date, that increases our service period yep. and therefore makes that days to retirement a smaller proportion yep. and therefore that results in a reduced tax-free uplift. Is that correct? 
Absolutely. The longer service days, um, uh, the service days are, uh, the the smaller fraction of the additional tax free right. uh, uplift you you will be getting. Uh, that's spot on. Absolutely. So there, so therefore, to break all of that down, really simple. If I'm funding my premiums with rollovers from another fund, and that earlier fund or that other fund has an earlier eligible service date. By doing that, I'm actually going to get a reduced level of tax-free uplift in the event that the, the client suffers an invalidity and, and there's an insured event that occurs and comes through. Yeah, that's okay, correct. Terrific. All right. Now, I assume, therefore, that the same thing is going to happen on any sort of roller. We're not just talking insurance-only super funds here. We're talking any sort of decision to consciously consolidate a member's different super funds into one fund that maybe has the insurance if you're bringing an earlier eligible service date in there, same outcome. Um, And also, I think this was also a a hidden lurking little nasty out of that auto consolidation. Um, So the protecting your super, one thing a lot of people kind of missed here is on those inactive low balance accounts, when we auto or when the ATO auto consolidates those, we could be sending money off to a really small amount of money, you know, a really small amount of money being sent off to an active account that's got insurance in it. And all of a sudden, if that small amount is from, you know, some super fund the client had or the member had when they were in, in let's say, going through uni or school even, yeah. then that could actually pick up a really early eligible service date and really, really ratchet down the level of tax-free uplift that we might get on invalidity. Absolutely, Craig. Yes. Yeah. So, so how would we obviously now, obviously in terms of a, a, a consolidation strategy, the advisor there just needs to be conscious of this rule. What about that? Um, if you do have clients sitting there and they, they've got those really small um, superannuation accounts, in a lot of sense from a from a fees and cost perspective, it would make sense to consolidate those. But if you don't want that early service date, so maybe you've got a client that maybe is you know, suffering some sort of incapacity, maybe they've got early onset cancer or something like that, and you really don't want that earlier service date coming in just to on the on the on the fear that this client may actually satisfy the condition of permanent incapacity at some point down the track, then you'd want to make an election there on that on that other fund and make sure it never gets rolled over, wouldn't you? Yeah, absolutely. You make yeah. an election to maintain those benefits or you take a pre, uh, proactive action uh, to consolidate your super um, and avoid having it consolidated into this particular fund that holds the TPD insurance. All right, Trevi, I think that covers everything. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Craig. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. See ya. Bye for now. Thanks for listening to the First Tech Podcast. Please remember, these podcasts are designed for authorised financial advisors. If you're not an authorised financial advisor, you need to remember that any scenarios considered during this podcast were for purely hypothetical and illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a recommendation to purchase, hold or sell any financial products or take any other course of action. And finally, you should read the relevant product disclosure statement before making any investment decision and once again consider talking to a financial advisor. While all care has been taken in preparation of this podcast using sources we believe to be reliable and accurate, no person including Colonial First Aid Investments Limited or Commonwealth Bank Group of Companies accepts responsibility for any loss suffered by any person arising from reliance on this information.